Today on the Everything 80s Podcast, the time that Magic Johnson turned down a deal with Nike. George Costanza while he was watching the movie Blimp. Ouch, that's gotta hurt. This one is for sports fans, or even if you don't like sports at all. The story of Magic Johnson not signing with Nike is a great tale of a missed opportunity, but also the rise of sports endorsements in the 80s. And it's a look at one of the most successful companies of all time and how much this whole thing would have been worth. So that's going to be what we're looking at here today on the Everything 80s podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out. I make podcasts all about the 1980s, and this is a great topic that I'd never heard about until this year. But before we start, if you haven't and you feel like it, go ahead and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Also, if you are a member of patreon.com over there on the Everything 80s Movie Club, I just did a review of Blade Runner. And this is a deep one because it we look at there's five at least five different versions of this movie and it's you know kind of recapping the plot but like plugging in these different versions over the years and why there were so many different ones and what the one true version is and all that so that's over at patreon if you haven't checked that out already check your feeds if you want to learn more I'll talk about more at the end of the show but that's patreon.com slash 80s but let's get to this very interesting story from 1980, the year 1980, and an upstart company named Nike trying to sign the newest NBA superstar, Magic Johnson. They didn't have a lot of money, so they offered a stock deal. Johnson ended up signing with Converse, and it's reported that the deal he turned down would have made him a multi-billionaire today. So let's journey back to the late 70s and early 80s, take a look at the man himself, his rise to prominence in the basketball world and this whole Nike 1980s rise to fame. If you are not a sports fan, there's no doubt you know the name Magic Johnson. At the very least, you may remember him from this Simpsons episode. The Lakers have the ball. Magic Johnson coming down the floor on a fast break. Magic stops his feet, slip out from under it. The ball flies out of his hand, hits the referee in the head, goes in the basket. It's a three-point play. The Lakers win. Looks like I pulled a homer. Here's a quick recap on the career of one of the best basketball players in history. Urban Magic Johnson was born in 1959 in Lansing, Michigan. Turns out he and I are pretty much neighbors. I live not that far from there. He was born to working class parents, so that work ethic was instilled in him at a young age. But Johnson had a lot of other natural gifts. He was tall and gravitated towards the game of basketball. He took to it quickly, and Johnson would routinely put up 30-point triple-double games while in high school. If you don't know basketball, that's good. That's, like, really good. It was his prolific scoring and absurd ability on the court that gave him the nickname Magic. When it came time to decide in college, Magic was not surprisingly recruited by every college under the sun. He chose nearby Michigan State and began his incredible college career. 
He was far from peaking in high school and continued his dominance into the NCAA. He led his team to a championship, beating a young Larry Bird and his Indiana State team. He also accomplished, accomplished this as a sophomore. When it came time for the NBA draft, Johnson was chosen first overall by the LA Lakers. There was zero transition from college to the pros as Magic dominated the league at an early age. In just his first year, he was able to step up as a leader and lead the Lakers to a championship. In those finals, as a rookie, keep in mind, he won MVP honors. We could be here all day discussing his athletic legacy, but here are a few highlights. He played 13 seasons and even coached 13 games as a player. He won five NBA championships. He was an NBA All-Star 12 times. He was a three-time NBA Finals MVP and a three-time NBA All-League MVP. So this is where we get into the state of the money in the NBA in the early 80s. So this is the whole point of the story and looking at this whole Nike Magic Johnson deal. It's important to point out a few things here. The first is that the NBA was not the financial juggernaut it is today. TV contracts and league value were not well established yet. It was growing for sure. It was big, but not at the rate it would be in future years. And it was in those select markets where it was always big. You know, New York, Boston, LA, Chicago, they're always going to be successful with whatever. But the league just wasn't where we know it now. Johnson signed, at the time, the richest deal in sports history. LA signed him for a crazy 25-year, $25 million contract. Converted for today, this is around $70 million. This amount of money is nothing to sneeze at, but you know that it has nothing on the current sports contracts out there. Example, Tom Brady. In the later stages of his career now, like him or not, um, whether you recognize him as the best of all time or not, he's still effective, but he is in the later stages of of his career. He signed for $50 million for just two years. With incentives, he could make a total of $60 million. It's not that magic wasn't worth more. It's just the money wasn't there yet. And the same thing was happening with shoe companies. The concept of celebrity shoe endorsements and $100 million athlete deals was not even a thought at the time. No shoe companies had really endorsed anyone before, and it course wasn't on the level we know it now. NBA icons like Dr. J worked with Converse, but this was more about him wearing the shoes than creating a huge branding movement with marketing and commercials seen all over the world. The Dr. J Converse connection is something important to remember for the rest of this story. I've also, speaking of the rise in Uh, celebrity shoe culture. I did a really interesting show about the story of British Knights shoes, if you remember those, and how they really changed how, you know, a sneaker brand could be portrayed and bringing in a crossover with hip hop and using some athletes. So that's a few years down the line, but you might find that interesting too. But this is the year a new shoe company entered the market. Day one, runners have taken their sport rather seriously. Once things got a little better organized, people started taking notes, analyzing how they ran, 
and how they could run even faster. Today at Nike, we know even more. We developed one of the most sophisticated sport research labs in the world to let us see, in detail, the peculiarities of style, the dynamics of foot strike. And at Nike, we're putting that knowledge to work, making shoes that actually help athletes to run faster and safer. Why do we go to so much trouble? Well, it may be the 20th century and all that, but there are still people out there who run as if their life depended on it. If you haven't read the brilliant book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, definitely check it out. It's an amazing look at the upstart company called Nike and all the trials they faced in those early years. But here's a quick summary of the state of Nike or Nike, however you want to say it, going into the early 80s. I'm just going to go with Nike. It's just, I don't know, one of those things that's clicked in my head. Nike was completely based around running. Track and field was their bread and butter, and they saw no reason to stray from that. They signed with some significant marathon runners, but these people were hardly household names. At the same time, the NBA was starting to grow in prominence. Athletes like Wilt Chamberlain and Dr. J had become breakout stars, but the best was still yet to come. One of the best was a young Magic Johnson. Seeing the new possibility of getting on board with high-profile superstars, Phil Knight knew he needed to create a partnership to further launch Nike into the public. Nike was successful, don't get me wrong, but it was more of a local success instead of a national and global one. And, you know, they've been early days were based out of Oregon and, you know, that was the Pacific Northwest was sort of their territory. And, you know, they slowly expanded. I mean, this is a gigantic story. I'm just painting rough strokes here. Um, Definitely check that book out. It's an easy read and just really insightful on the history of Nike. But, you know, they're starting to recognize there maybe is the potential with, you know, branching out just from running. They decided that Magic Johnson was the perfect guy to sign with them. But there was one big problem. They didn't have any money. It was hard keeping the company afloat in those early years. And actually, the more they grew, the more they were actually losing money. It's a weird business phenomenon that I don't understand, but... Again, it's all explained really well in in Shoe Dog. And they thought they were, you know, when they had their running endorsements and their marathon runners tied in and, you know, they're starting to expand and they're growing and they thought they were doing great and they were close to going bankrupt. It's, It's this weird, if you know business, you probably understand this phenomenon more than I do. But, you know, many times they almost didn't make it. And right when they thought they were growing huge, they were told, you guys have no money. So they've got to keep this momentum going. Nike's popular. So you said Nike right there. It's going to go back and forth. There's no way to stop it. They know they're popular, uh, you know, not mainstream yet, not a household name yet, but growing, they don't want to lose that momentum. And, you know, now they're seeing the potential with, you know, how the NBA is starting to grow and there's more of these breakout stars that people are gravitating towards. So they don't want to miss the opportunity. So they approach Magic Johnson for partnership. So I have to point out a few things here. Magic signed his big contract in 1981. In 1979-1980, he wasn't exactly wealthy despite being an NBA player. Phil Knight approached Magic about a partnership, but was upfront about the fact they were strapped for cash. 
Instead of cash, Nike offered Johnson a stock-based deal. Knight was confident in the future of the company and the success he knew was there with Nike, and he was offering a huge amount of shares to get Magic Johnson to sign. Johnson knew nothing about shares and didn't see how a company could come to him without offering him any money. It was all like when I'm saying they didn't have any money, they had nothing. They were barely, barely keeping the lights on at this point. So, they, I mean, they couldn't even offer him a thousand bucks if they had it. It was also hard to buy into an upstart shoe company that wasn't working with any notable athletes. Like I said, no disrespect to the marathon runners, but, you know, some of these people were, again, not super well known outside of the running community. It was also hard to tell if they were even going to be around the following year. At the same time all this is going on, there were a bunch of other shoe companies that were all trying to compete with Nike. They were springing up here and there and they were seeing, you know, the success Nike was having and running and they were trying to do it in the Midwest or the Northeast. Um, And, you know, it wasn't just running and some were there a little bit before, but there was quite a few of these companies springing up and you just couldn't tell which one was going to last. The fact they couldn't offer any cash wasn't a good sign that they were going to be a lasting success. Johnson was also being approached by every company you could ever think of. It's not that shoe endorsement deals weren't a thing, but they still need to offer cash of some sort, or so Magic thought. Since Dr. J was his hero, he decided to sign with Converse, which was more than happy to get on board with the new superstar. Nike had to lick their wounds and crawl away. Obviously, no spoiler alert here, things worked out pretty well for them. So let's look at the nuts and bolts of all this. How much money did Magic Johnson miss out on by not signing with Nike? So bit of math time here. And I think I've broken this down well enough to give you the gist of it. Nike obviously ended up okay. They went public in 1981, right around the time Magic was signing his monster deal. Not with the drink company, but with his team. For the first Nike IPO, they sold off their shares for only 18 cents each. The other part of these stocks is a little confusing, but they basically existed in a two-for-one format. Over the years, this meant that the stocks you owned would double. If you bought just one share in 1980, it would have turned into 128 shares, and that one share would be worth nearly $12,000 today. But that's one share. Let's look what would happen if you bought $1,000 worth of shares from that first IPO. That $1,000 would have bought you 5,555 shares. And remembering the two-for-one aspect that Nike had with their shares, it would mean that today those 5,555 would have turned into 711,000 shares. Right now, Nike stock closes at around, I mean, obviously this is always fluctuating, roughly around $92 per share. So that means the $1,000 you invested back then would be worth $65 million today. Yowza. It's pretty safe to say that Nike offered Johnson a lot more than just $1,000 worth of shares. Nike or Magic has never shared exactly how many shares they offered, but let's take a look at this. Converse or any other companies were not offering, again, the multi-million dollar endorsement deals uh, that we know. They weren't doing this in the early 80s. But according to ESPN, Dr. J's first deal with Converse was worth $20,000. 
seems like absolute peanuts today, but this was an unprecedented deal at the time. Let's assume that Nike would offer at least half of that to Magic, as he wasn't yet as established as Dr. J. So $10,000 worth of Nike stock from 1980 would now be worth over $650 million. But what if it was $20,000 worth of stock? Still a very reasonable amount because Nike was giving away a lot of stock because that's all they had. If they had given him $20,000 worth of stock, we're looking at $1.3 billion. Again, no way to know the exact amount, but it's been mentioned by Inc.com that Johnson would be a multi-billionaire had he taken the deal. In one last kick in the teeth, Nike would end up buying Converse in 2003. It's heartbreaking, but so amusing to hear. There's so many different types of these stories of the people that, you know, had a chance to buy stock in Apple and then passed on it, or they had a chance to get in on the first IPO of like Google and had all these things. And I, I guess I can tell this, I have some family members and people connected to them who had connections, who knew the creators of the game Trivial Pursuit, and also had the opportunity to invest in the early stages of Trivial Pursuit for only like that same thing around $1,000, which of course would end up being worth millions and they didn't take it. You know, and it, of course it's easy to look back and, and think of all the opportunities that might come up today with the majority, you know, not panning out. And, you know, $1,000, um, 40 plus whatever years ago, that's a lot. It's a lot of money today. It's a lot of money back then. So you can't blame people for not taking, you know, what's this company called Apple and it's in a garage made by these two hippies and there's no way in hell that's going to take off. You never know. But this was uh, one, I mean, you can't blame Magic Johnson because of, you know, all those factors we mentioned that with fa were facing Nike at the time and not having the startup money, not being able to offer anything. And again, like all these other companies were coming to him. So they were just one of dozens and it was easy to brush off. But things obviously worked out okay for Johnson and of course Nike. I mean, trying to relay, this is far from a sad story. In 1982, a hotshot new college basketball player would be wearing Nike shoes in the NCAA Finals and would continue to as he went in the NBA. And that player's name was, let me just check my notes here, Michael Jordan. Today, Nike generates nearly $40 billion a year and, of course, changed the face of sports. And when it comes to Magic Johnson... I don't know if you follow business stuff. He's done some phenomenal things um, and is doing quite well for himself. He started the Magic Johnson Enterprises, where he's invested in everything from fast food locations to pro sports teams to real estate. And they go by MJA, MJE. They have holdings of around $1 billion, And Magic Johnson himself is considered to be worth around 600 to $700 million. The story of when Magic Johnson didn't sign with Nike is an amazing look back at not only, you know, the early days of the NBA and these new superstars, but the early days of pro athlete endorsements and, you know, not knowing who to kind of put all your chips on and not knowing who's going to pan out. And at the same time, 
the athletes not knowing who should should they sign with. Are they going to be embarrassed for signing with a company that, you know, goes bankrupt and they look like idiots for endorsing them? For the companies at the time, this was one of the eras in sports where these few athletes were a sure bet. And whether you're a shoe company or a car company or you sold chewing gum, you knew with these guys coming up like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, these things were sure bets. So they could, you know, aggressively go after them, even though they didn't have a lot to offer. And on a side note, it's interesting to see, again, if you're interested in sports, what's happening in the tennis world right now, because there have been in the last 10, 15, whatever years, sure bets in players like Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Djokovic. These guys were sure bets. So it was easy for each company to, you know, latch onto their guy and ride this thing out for a decade. Now, with these top heavyweight guys in this like amazing era of tennis where they, you know, to have all these guys that existed in the same era at the same time is remarkable. As they're starting to slowly wind down, the big companies, the big sporting companies, um, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, Slazenger, all the, and the tennis companies, they know they're not going to be around forever. So who are they going to bank on for the future? There's so many new, uh, you know, up and coming players that these companies don't know exactly where to go. Do they, you know, go for someone who's not as highly touted and hope, you know, he makes it big because they can get a better deal? Or do they watch, you know, where the other companies are targeting and those specific players. And then they try to target them as well too, with no hope that these guys are going to be a sure thing, but they want to make sure they land him. So it's a much more chaotic scene in sports right now. These big companies are already successful. They just don't know who's going to be the next big thing. And they're kind of scrambling to figure it out. Back in the eighties, the players were already the big thing and the companies were not the sure thing. And they were sort of scrambling to see how they were going to survive or not. And the NBA players at the time were able to sort of sit back and just be like, mm, we'll wait and see, you'll pick that um, pass. They, they had so much coming at them. Magic Johnson still says he's kicking himself about not taking the deal. But it's understandable when you look at all those issues surrounding that first deal. So let's finish it there. Hopefully you enjoyed this. It's it's an interesting story and it's also an interesting look back into the early days of the 80s and sports and all this stuff and endorsements and everything like that. So I'll finish it off. If you want to take off, close this out, no problem. If you want to learn more about patreon.com and supporting a show like this, I'll just quickly cover it. So at patreon.com, it is the platform to support small independent shows like this, which is, you know, as great as podcasting is, it is tougher to stand out in this sort of podcast universe with these giant corporations, podcast networks, celebrities, you know, for the little guy, it's tougher to make a mark. So with patreon.com, it's a way for as little as a few bucks a month to support these small shows. The difference is you get audio rewards for, you know, the various levels you may support. So in my case here, say at the Boba Fett level, that's the middle tier. That's like, what, five bucks a month. That gives you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club where, you know, I just did Blade Runner and there's a bunch of other stuff there. And then on the different tiers, there's different awards. And on Patreon, you know, I'm also sharing all kinds of things. Like I release the podcast there early before it goes out worldwide. 
um, you know, a lot of movie stuff, behind the scenes pictures. I'll do some Saturday morning cartoons where I'll post some classic cartoons from the 80s on there, a bunch of stuff. So if you want to learn more, you can go to patreon.com slash 80s, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80s, or wherever you're listening to this on, if you go into the show notes, the details for the show, there'll be a link that'll take you right there. But from here on out, the next episodes through December will all be Christmas-based, including the Christmas special that will come out just before. So thank you for listening, and I will see you soon. Looks like I pulled a homer. <laughs>